Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Cherry Zhang. This show seeks to read the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our 10th episode of The Framing Effect, we welcome Ambassador Anna Teresa Dengo, diplomat of Costa Rica. From 2006 to 2014, she served as ambassador to Austria, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Montenegro, Serbia, Slovakia, and Slovenia. As permanent representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency, the CTBTO, UNIDO, and the United Nations Office in Vienna, she pioneered the growth of sustainable nuclear energy in developing nations. She was also a keystone in the discussions that led to the banning of nuclear tests. In today's episode, we discuss Ambassador Dango's experience in high-stakes arms negotiations and the future development of Latin America. Ms. Dango, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Thank you very much, Jerry, for this invitation. And we're going to talk a little bit about your career, your involvement with anti-atomic protocols, and then also we'll move on uh, later into education and hopefully education reform, some of the UN SDGs and other topics. I know if I've heard correctly, your father was the vice president of Costa Rica. So you've had a long lineage of uh, foreign affairs and international affairs. How did you get kind of get interested in this field? You're, you're correct in saying that I, I suppose I was born into it <laughs> in a way for many reasons. I, I mean, basically I was... Um, not only was my father in, in the government, but before he was actually working in uh, an international organization. We lived in Washington, D.C. for quite a while. He actually worked at the Central American uh, Development Bank. So it was kind of, it was kind of embedded uh, in the family, let's put it that way. And the, the interest came from very, very um, young age. Specifically for the nuclear field and then the, the uh, I would say probably international peace and security, I would probably say that the the first interest game from the time that I was actually quite young, when we had the uh, the Cuba Missile Crisis in 1962, and again my father was in government; he was not the the, the vice president at that time, but he was in government. And I, I suppose all of us, particularly in the Latin American uh, region, were sort of holding our breath to see what was going on. And uh, and then there were 13, 12, 13 days actually where we actually held our breath. And I, I guess the whole world was at the same situation, but we had it in our own backyard. And... Um, I was a particularly informed child because uh, because of my father's uh, career. So I was always very, very uh, concerned about what would happen. And not only that, but the role that we could play. So I, I suppose it, it sort of was part of our makeup. And uh, particularly Costa Rica, because Costa Rica is a very peaceful country, a very small country, but it has had a very big role in the international field. So 
I, I, I would probably say that uh, that that's where the whole thing stems from. So during your tenure with the International Atomic Energy Agency, was that in the mid two thousands during when you were also a representative for other countries, or was that a separate time? That, that that's no no that's different. Two thousand six, two thousand fourteen. I was actually representing Costa Rica in seven different countries and in Austria to the United Nations organizations in, in Vienna, and then seven uh, other countries, uh, the neighboring countries. It was interesting because there was a, <clears throat> a couple of them we already had diplomatic relations with, but I was I had the opportunity to actually open relationships with a lot of the, uh, particularly the the uh, former Yugoslav uh, republic, uh, republics. So that was kind of an interesting uh, time. It was giving an opportunity to create a lot of uh, links and uh, create a lot of relationships with the country with uh, a lot of new countries that we never had uh, relationships with. Mm-hmm. And with Austria, we worked very easily, both in the, uh, the bilateral and the multilateral field. Because we have a lot of things in common, and the both countries are, are have similar international policies and, and neutral countries, and we both work for uh, disarmament. So it was, it was a very easy sort of uh, marriage, let's put it that way, <laughs> that we work together in, in many of the initiatives. Uh, like I said, both bilaterally and within the uh, the multilateral organization. Mm-hmm. So did you advocate for peaceful nuclear energy usage in Costa Rica, or was there... Yeah. Well, basically, um, even even before that, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. The, the reason I moved to Vienna, at least that time, because it was my second uh, tenure in Vienna, was because I joined the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the CTBTO, which had just been opened... Uh, the the organization itself has just been open, and it, the thing is, I was, I was say that I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time because I was in New York serving at the UN when the treaty was open for signature, and then I was actually, I was in Washington, well, working Washington for the International Inter American Development Bank and a couple of other organizations, and that's its consultant, and then they called me to serve as an advisor of the Costa Rican ambassador, because he, he assumed the presidency of the group, what's called the G77, which is the group of developing countries at the UN. And at that time, I was working mostly in the, my first degree is in engineering. Then I got my master's in, in public policy, but I was mostly working in the economic field. But when the treaty opened for signature and the, the whole process of, of the political process in order to they get the country to sign the treaty, the ambassador asked me to to cover that, and I became very involved in that. The, the, the year finished, I went back to Washington, and a couple of months later, a former colleague from, from the UN called me and said, you know, the, the secretariat, the CTPTO secretariat has been open for already in, in Vienna, and there's a position there that has your name. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll check and see. It was interesting because 
it's a position that call for somebody with a political background, but with technical, but a combination of, of political and technical background. And I had that, which was actually quite rare because either you're a diplomat or a, or a technical person, right? And I had both. So it was, uh, I guess it was a position to have my name on it. And they, they, they called me and later on I knew that there had been 400 people there that applied to it. So it was quite a, an interesting uh, opportunity that I got there. In fact, uh, I, uh, th there's an anecdote that, that I'd, I'd like to tell. I went to interview and at the last interview, the uh, director told me, okay, we were looking for a more political person, but we like your profile because you can, you combine the two things. But as an engineer, can you re-engineer yourself? And I said, yes, I can. On the way back to Washington, it's a 10 hour flight. I said, oh my God, what did I do? What did I get myself into? But it turned out to be the best thing. Of course, I started reading every single, I mean, preparing myself in every aspect of disarmament and, and looking out for information that I could. And I really became so involved in it that, that to this day, people consider me an expert in the field. So it's kind of a, one of those things where you take a challenge or take an opportunity and, and make the best of it. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. In the in getting sorry, so so I was there for eight years. It was it was it was a seven year tenure, but it was a small group still. So they gave us a few of us two extra years, right? And then the the Costa Rican Minister for Foreign Affairs and then Vice President came to Vienna because there was a meeting of the Latin American group and the European group. And he said, you know, we have been looking at you. We would like to propose that you assume the embassy because there was a change affairs, there was no ambassador. So in fact, it was one of those things that I was not even considering. It was just kind came, of came as a as an, uh, welcome surprise. And with the opportunity also to cover all of those other countries. So basically, I cover obviously the CTVTO, then the, the International Atomic Energy Agency, but there's also the uh, UNIDO, which is the Industrial Development Organization, and the, the Office of Drugs and Crime. So it's quite a, an interesting uh, job. And uh, yeah, and I had the opportunity to, because of my background there, to actually chair several of the other instruments, uh, like the uh, Hague uh, Code of Conduct uh, against ballistic missiles and um, other disarmament uh, instruments also. So, What were the, some of the national or international difficulties that you faced when trying to get the test ban treaty signed? Because I'm sure some countries supported disarmament, some countries maybe opposed. Oh, well, it was it was it was actually quite interesting because we started basically from zero. The the, the thing is that the CTVTO at the beginning and during the negotiations in Geneva, the negotiations actually to to come up with the uh, with the text of the treaty, or two and a half years of negotiations, 
um, it was actually discussed whether it would be part of the International Atomic Energy Agency. But because of political reasons, they decided to have a, a completely full-fledged organization separate from the, from the International Atomic Agency. But, I mean, basically, one of the things that, that this, uh, many countries did not understand what it was, particularly they, they uh, kind of a, those that were not related to the nuclear field. And so it was, it was, we had to explain the, the benefits of not having nuclear tests. And in and, and, and a nutshell, basically, there's no country, not even the one that we're in, can produce new nuclear weapons. They can upgrade through simulation the ones that they have, but not come up with new nuclear tests. And weapons rather without testing. And the important thing is that the testing was since nineteen forty five until nineteen ninety six when, when the treaty was actually open for signature, there were over two thousand tests all over the world. Mostly and, and there were a lot in the Pacific, there were a lot of in and the Caribbean also. But there were also they had been some treaties, but they were partial treaties. And the important thing is that, like the name says, it's a comprehensive treaty. So no country can actually undertake any test in any uh, underground, underwater, and air without being detected. So, but the important thing is to have countries understand First of all, the importance of, of stop testing and also the importance of a very strong support for the treaty in order to press those who actually have continued to, to well, had continued to test. There's, there's, there's one that's still a wrong state that's still testing, but not, hasn't even attended any other uh, discussions or anything. But... Like I said, the, the chances were many. First of all, for the countries to understand the treaty. Second of all, to understand the importance of having a strong voice in the international community. And third, also to understand <clears throat> that the, in, in order to, <clears throat> sorry, to prevent the countries from <clears throat> From testing, there are five different monitoring technologies that, that the countries actually use, and they're placed strategically all over the world. And at the beginning, it was a very strong position for some of the countries that these technologies, because they do have a dual use, for example, Seismology, obviously, for earthquakes, but infrasound, for example, helps to detect if there's a change in the in the um, movements underwater. For example, and to detect if there's a tsunami coming in order to take, you know, evacuate the uh, populations and everything. So the, the, 
It wasn't until the tsunami in the Pacific region that the Preparatory Commission, which is the, the, the group of states that actually sit together to discuss all the things that are happening in the treaty, accepted that the information that the stations that were placed worldwide would be available to the through UNESCO to the um, organizations or the the, um, the, inter the scientific community that was actually in charge of taking action within the community, civil action, in order to prevent disasters or more disasters. Or... So that was actually quite interesting, but it, it was it was a big challenge in order to convince, I guess it's all of the state. Mm -hmm. The other biggest challenge, obviously, was dealing with the states that did not want to. The, the treaty has something very interesting. You can actually sign it and upon signature you acquire the same obligations and the same benefits as if you ratify. So some of the countries that have not ratified, I think they don't need to. They they get the benefit, they get the information, they get uh, again the obligations I have to pay for the for the Access contribution, but they also have the possibility to have their own nationals working in the treaty and in the organization. Right? So, in many cases, it's actually difficult to have the argument that they should ratify in order to benefit because they're already benefiting from the signature. Although, that was one of the biggest challenges in order to convince them of the importance of the ratification because it strengthens the treaty. And up to date, there, there are eight um, different countries that have not ratified. So, I still, in the process, there's just still many discussions. I had the opportunity to actually chair not only the Preparatory Commission twice, but also the meeting that we held every two years in order to facilitate the entry into force of the treaty. And that was a big challenge because it was the big discussions they had. Uh, very interesting because every time we had a, a meeting that we managed to move the entry, entry force closer, but it still hasn't happened. And then and some, some uh, um, countries are very reluctant, they said, you know, what, what is this actually the purpose of, of uh, continuing with the efforts and everything. But the stations are there, the, the monitoring system is there, still up to date because it's actually uh, state-of-the-art uh, technologies that are used to, to monitor. And so I, I would say probably, you know, just convincing some of the uh, the more the more reluctant state of the importance to sign or ratify the treaty. Not only for their national benefit, but for the benefit of the international community. As a engineer by first trade and also a diplomat with a strong foundation in policy and international affairs, 
sure you have a very unique perspective on these kind of discussions and debates. So were there any particular negotiation strategies that you would use or implemented when talking with other countries? Yeah, well, obviously, one of the things that I did, particularly when I went to visit countries one-on-one, and I trust me, they sent me, it was interesting because my director, as Costa Rica has a very neutral position, he would send me everywhere, particularly to those countries that had a, had a very strong position in the nuclear field. And because they wouldn't see a Costa Rican national, supposedly you're part of the organization, but obviously they look at your nationality anyway. I said they would send me literally everywhere in the world, but particularly they, 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 <laughs> they select me and send me to, to some of the uh, toughest countries. So one of the things that I did was obviously prepare myself as deeply as I could, not only in the, in the nuclear background, but also in the historical background. And then people appreciated that. I think it was one of the things that they saw that obviously I came to negotiate, but I also, you know, took the time to interest myself in their own countries and, and to try to understand where they were coming from. Because many times, a national position is not a national position per se. It has a background and it has historical reasons. So one of the things that I really did was to really try to connect with the people, not only you know at the at the uh, the level of of okay, I come here with the organization because I want to, to, to have this goal, but also to establish a link and try to you know see it from 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 their own side you- uh, no i had i had some some very interesting uh discussions and particularly with the atomic energy but they were i will listen the uh the border governors and some of the discussions there were really really interesting some of them i could not quite mention because i cannot mention the countries but I had very interesting insights of a lot of the, um, like I said, the, the, the political and, and, and national positions that brought them to have a specific uh, a specific position in the, the nuclear area, right? So uh, that. Now, if I... Get this correct. You were involved in the Treaty of Talache Local. What was the significance of that treaty, and what was your position on it? Well, that's interesting. You asked that question because when I was talking about the 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 uh, Cuban missile crisis, actually, Tlatelolco stemmed from that. It, it, it's actually the Treaty of the Latin American region. It's a, a very the important treaty, it's it's the first one that was actually, it was a pioneer treaty in the sense that it was the first treaty that a very large populated region with an inhabited region agreed to declare itself a nuclear weapon tree. And uh, there were many nuclear free zones that came after that, but this is the first one. 
and I was actually, like I said, a, a very pioneer PD. I was not involved in the negotiations because I was actually still very young when it came, but I did participate a lot of, in a lot of the discussions, in particularly in OpenAL, which is the, the the organization which is based in Mexico, actually in Tlatelolco, is where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Mexico is located. And so that's why it's called the Tlatelolco Treaty, because it was negotiated there. And they, uh, they implemented organizations OpenAL. And so we had a lot of discussions. We actually did a lot of participation in, in events and, and with, together with OpenAL. And in order to, there's, there's just a clear commitment on the whole Latin American region that this is a nuclear war with Zizon and we will maintain our commitment to a nuclear war with Zizon. But not only that, there was a commitment also to try to promote that other regions also become nuclear weapon visions. And it was very successful in that sense. And like I said, it was a, it was a reference a treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, tangentially, in recent news, uh, Japan has began you know, it, putting the nuclear waste of the Fukushima disaster into the uh, surrounding waters or oceans near their ports. And this has upset China, which has increased uh, tensions in that area higher than they already previously were. Do you have an opinion on the this form of disposal of nuclear waste or the situation in general? Well, it is still difficult to to speculate, and particularly because we're we're near depending on on, on the on the news that are not necessarily. Don't they have their bias? But of course I do. I mean, it's uh, one of the things that we, uh, and it's actually uh, the board of governors when Fukushima happened. One of the main concerns actually was the contamination of the waters, not only of the air, but the contamination of the waters in the area. And the area, not only the area, the area went all in the Pacific actually across the, 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 the whole Pacific Ocean until it was actually detected in the sides of California, side of California. But, I mean, there are a lot of regulations within the Atomic Energy Agency, particularly, in order to control uh, the the disposal of waste. So it is a matter of concern. I mean, like I said, I don't have the, the percent information particularly because I'm not there right now, but it's definitely a matter of concern. Fortunately, <clears throat> Those things many times are used, like I said, to just, you know, light the fire of areas of conflict. And and that's always been a very a controversial issue because it's actually not, it's the whole population is affected. This is actually the, the fisheries and the, 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 uh, the population, particularly that lives in the coastal area. So... I mean, like I said, I, I don't like to speculate without having first information, but I have been reading the news. And in, in any cases, the country, and particularly a country like China, that has a clear understanding of the instruments that can be used in order to call the, the attention of the international field, I mean, the, the international community, to take action in that sense. Obviously, my husband would probably be able to tell you more, but this uh, is more in, in that area. Whenever there's a, a risk 
particularly for large populations, it's always a matter of concern. It just occurred to me that Fukushima happened in 2011, which was during the middle of your tenure with the atomic mm -hmm. agency. Was there a huge panic when that disaster happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, not, not only was there a huge panic, we went personal panic because my daughter has just left. She, she lived in Japan for four years. So he just moved to Japan in January. The Fukushima happened in March. I had too much information. So I said, okay, what do I do? Do I act like a mother or do I like... Basically, what I did at the beginning was ask her to uh, to leave for a while. So she moved, to, she went to, we had some friends in, in uh, Thailand. Wait until the, the, the water settled literally and to get more information see what's happening. But I called her and said, she didn't even know. She had not uh, been informed she was in the, uh, more in the south. But anyway, we had all the reports from the from the def different organizations. We had all the reports from the uh, private company that actually TEPCO that operated the uh, the organization uh, station and and the uh, and the, the whole uh, Fukushima nuclear facility. And obviously, we had the uh, the report from the from the Japanese government. It was interesting. It was a very interesting time. Because the director general of the Atomic Energy Agency at that time, he's passed away since, was a Japanese national. So it was actually quite an interesting um, coincidence there. But yes, of course, no, we spent, I don't know how many days and nights uh, discussing and then looking at reports and trying to get as much information as we could in order to take action if action is necessary. Right? I had an interesting... Uh, situation exactly a year later the Japanese government invited us to the Fukushima prefecture in in order to they were they were intent on showing that there was no at risk that there were no radiation levels there that were risk free for the population so we I actually had the opportunity to go and visit it was just a small group of, of ambassadors that they invited us to to, to come and sort of inspect uh, firsthand how the situation was. So yes, it was, I mean, the, the probably Fukushima took, well, probably two years of, of, of the work uh, that we did there because it was, you know, one report after another and discussions and, and uh, it was a very complicated time because uh, the, uh, it was it was interesting because after Chernobyl, this is 30 years after Chernobyl. Nobody wanted to hear nuclear. And then little by little, what we called the nuclear renaissance was coming up. And then Fukushima happened. And then again, you know, the, the nuclear discussions started again. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was a, a series, a series of, of, of occurrences. It wasn't just one. It was the, the earthquake, the tsunami, it was everything together, right? So, but it was a very unfortunate uh, situation. Well, this disaster is less to hear about the national scale, how it affects large scale of people. It's very interesting to hear about your kind of personal involvement and the individuals and how they reacted to this situation, namely your daughter and the Japanese chairman. I guess with, on your, what you were saying about the nuclear renaissance, after Fukushima happened, there was another massive conversation about whether nuclear energy is safe. 
So what do you think the climate of nuclear development is today? Well, I think, I personally think that, that it is safe and it's actually a clean technology. And if you look at the disasters that have happened, basically Chernobyl was the one that's actually the, the, the largest in that sense. Fukushima itself, nobody actually died from the radiation. It was more from, from like I said, there, there was a series of, of events, uh, the, the earthquake, the tsunami, the, 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 uh, the cooling of the water. But it has, obviously, the, the, all the measures had to be taken. I think it actually, what brought was a big discussion within the, the, the IAEA of how to strengthen the standards in order to prevent the risks as much as possible. But, but I do, I mean, if we look at, if we look at, um, at, uh, other technologies, particularly for the, the, the power generation, nuclear is, 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 is a clean technology and it actually doesn't have a lot of waste because the waste issue has been controlling most of the cases. I had the opportunity to visit many of the uh, other facilities in, in, in the UK, France, and even the ships that actually uh, transported the, uh, the nuclear waste. Because the happens is with the, with the nuclear fuel, the country that is actually providing it is responsible for also retrieving the waste. And it has, the technology side has improved so much that the waste from the nuclear reactors actually has been reduced to a minimum. I would say, I'm not going to say eliminated completely, but it has been reduced to, to, to a minimum. So yeah, I mean, and the other thing is that, and I think that's something that's very important, is that there's very little knowledge of, I mean, normally if you say nuclear, everybody thinks of toy. But there's a lot of uh, benefits from using uh, nuclear energy and, and, and what we call the, the peaceful uses of, of the nuclear energy in medicine and agriculture and the environment and many, many, many other areas that people are not necessarily aware of. <clears throat> so that's, that's another thing that's important. It's important to, to create more knowledge within the different uh, population and, and, and particularly we had President de Costa Rica actually to um, make presentations to the press. So we had the, the journalist, me, and we actually made presentations in the benefits that could be obtained. Obviously, understanding also the risks and, and their concerns, but uh, also make them understand of, uh, of the uh, potential benefits that they could get from the uh, nuclear technologies. And it was interesting because it was a project that started it and we started in Costa Rica, then we had Panama, then we had in Saudi Arabia. Because of that, because it was uh, the, uh, the journalists themselves, there were very few that specialize in, in, the, in the field. Others are they're just basically reacting to 
to the news in other areas or to going back to, again, the, the uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, right? So it, that, that's something that was actually important, that understanding that uh, not only at the level of the population, but also the level of the, uh, of the, of the what we were calling the, the scientific journalists, to understand that. Now, Latin America is seen very much in the, sorry, Latin America is seen very much in the technological space as a, sorry, is my audio still working? My uh, camera just stopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't see you, but I can hear you. Okay. That's probably okay. I can cut this part out and post. <laughs> so Latin America is seen in the technological space as a forerunner. There's so much education, development, technological development occurring in the region that in the next couple of decades, one of the top places for tech startup companies, healthcare companies, and other industries. Now, will Latin America have the same exponential growth in development for energy in the next couple of decades as well? Uh, that's a very good question. It, it's, it's actually difficult to generalize because some countries that have very specific kind of growth in that sense. Others, unfortunately, the uh, there's been a lot of political unrest and then there are a lot of political issues that are actually affecting the development and in that sense. So, so it's not like a... It's, it's not easy to generalize. But I would, I would think so. I would think so. It's uh, that there's a lot of uh, efforts and there's a lot of initiatives that are taking place, particularly in some of the countries in, in Latin America, that uh, offer a very good uh, possibility for development. I mean, for me, it, that 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 and the critical thing, and we're, we're talking to the. Uh, you mentioned education first. That's that's a critical key, actually, in order to to promote any kind of a, 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 a spirit of progress. Right? Is it very true? And the case of Costa Rica, and I'll be very specific in the case of Costa Rica. We uh, Costa Rica, like I said, is a, it's a neutral country. It was uh, 1948. Uh, took the decision to abolish the army. It was never a very huge army like in other Latin American countries, but it was an army nonetheless. And it made the decision to actually allocate the resources that were being allocated to the army to the social sector, so basically to health, education, etc. So, um, and that made a big difference. It made a big difference even from some of the neighboring countries. Unfortunately, and I, I'll be very blunt here, the last two administrations and probably the current administration have taken a different approach uh, to education. So we have gone down in, 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 the, in, the, in the indexes that we had before. But it's basically, it's always been like a, a national let's say, a, a development, a national development uh, policy. Two main things, the uh, like I said, the education and the social sector and the environment. 
the preservation of the environment. We have many national parks, about 35% of the territory is, is national park. And those things were always kind of our, our, our flag and development, which actually <clears throat> does cause the country to be quite stable and quite uh, democratic, actually. And uh, which at the same time also calls, makes it interesting for investment and uh, a lot of the, uh, what you're saying about the, uh, the technological uh, companies have established in Costa Rica because of time, because they, they, they see there's a, a very stable, a very secure country to establish. And, and also because they level those education quite high so they can find a good work, educated workforce. So for my final question before we wrap up, the behavior when dealing with countries, I'm sure is they're very stubborn. They like to stick to their own policies and of course i think all nations like to act in their own self-interest but education as a global matter has been explored with the un sustainable development goals it's one of the main goals the fourth one i believe and that requires global effort on behalf of every governmental agency in every nation on earth but in diplomacy and bureaucracy, it's very difficult to get everyone cooperating. Do you have any suggestions on whether it's a local level or a national level, how to obtain more cooperation in the global community for education? Well, I think you have to take actions at all levels. You have to you have to take action at the local level. You have to take action at the national level. You have to take action at the regional level. And you have to take action at the international level. <clears throat> and there are many emphasis that have actually been done what within the UN, but uh, also within the UN organizations that are actually dealing with education, but also at the regional level. There are many regional organizations. <clears throat> For example, in the, in the case of Latin America, we have the Organization of American States. In the case of Asia, we have ASEAN, and in Africa, we have the African Union, etc., etc., etc. And each of those are actually promoting the education efforts, at, like I said, at the different levels. But there's still a lot to do. There's still a lot to do. I'd like, the, uh, I'd like to mention here the efforts that we're discussing with the Rotary International, because there's a lot of the NGOs and the civil organizations that I can actually create a lot of awareness and particularly move the academic sector to take action by themselves. Not just sit there and say, okay, we'll wait for the government to support us or we went when wait for the event to push us or to fund us. No, no, no. It has to be, you know, I have a responsibility. I'm also responsible to take action here, even if it's at the, 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 the local level. And also the other thing that's important is to create in the children the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the will to, to learn and to be educated, the will to learn, to, to learn to read, 
to to write more because as a journalist, you see them they barely read and write well, and but it's a lack of of of, uh, of promotion. Sometimes we say, okay, just because of the poverty level and stuff, but there are a lot of other ways, particularly now with the internet. I know there's a lot of negative press, and I have a lot of negative uh, thoughts about some of the uh, social media, but it can be used in a positive way in order to promote education. And promote education, like I said, to, to foster in children the, the will to learn, to, to be educated, to, uh, to read, to write, to uh, learn more. And like I said, but, but particularly with the internet, there's a lot of research. Of course, it has to be conducted or well controlled, in it because otherwise there there could be negative uses as well. But I think we have those tools that we didn't have. Well, you did, but uh, we didn't have when I was young. And so I think we had to take advantage of those tools in order to uh, one one of the interesting things, and I think that uh, trying to learn from the lessons of COVID is that we it made us remember that we were an international community, that we're not isolated, that we're not separated, that we're all one. And I think that message can be brought into the education field, particularly. And then to make us remember that we can all contribute to each other, we can actually help to reach education levels that that uh, could be worldwide. Do you hope there is more successful, successful development in terms of cooperation on that front? And Oh, yes. I, 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 I'm definitely, I do. I do. I, I'm most uh, optimistic, but I was also realistic. I think there's, there's a lot to do, but there's quite a lot of people, I think, taking action at the different levels. I think it has to be probably a more integrated action, but, but at least there's a lot of initiatives that are taking place. And I think it's important to try to find a way, and I, and I because I'm a firm believer of the UN, it's probably through the UN as the uh, kind of the the uh, synergistic organization in that sense that we can help it and I, I see a lot of potential and I, and I see a lot of possibilities for the future Thank you so much for listening and special thanks again to Ambassador Dengo for sitting down for this conversation If you have feedback or questions regarding this podcast please contact the Framing Effect PC at gmail.com Look forward to the clips of this episode on our Instagram at the Framing Effect PC. As always, don't forget to stay curious.